Well, Father, we come before you, and this is the time when we learn from your word. I pray that as you teach us today and help us understand uh, just the place of rituals and revelation, that you'll just help us to be Bible-centered, that we will submit to the authority of your word, we'll see it as true. So, Lord, I pray that you will speak in Christ's name. Amen. Well, about a month ago, uh, Becky and I had a chance to you know, meet a, a new couple over dinner. Uh, they were earnest, sincere Christians. As we began to talk, we learned more about them, how they have a biblical view of the gospel, a biblical view of conversion, a biblical view uh, of the biblical sexual ethic. And actually, he, he told me that politically and theologically, he is to the right of Genghis Khan. Now, naturally, I laughed, even though I still don't know what that means. But, uh, you know, you learn to play along. All right, Genghis Khan to the right. All right. But when we talked about where they attend church, uh, they attend a church which initially, when this denomination started, it was evangelical in nature. Uh, it would have broad agreement with where we are at this church, but this is a church that has made a, a radical left turn away from biblical doctrine. The, the revelation that is taught from the pulpit is radically different. And so I asked the obvious question, right? Why do you still go to that church when you have such a profound disagreement? And he had a hard time explaining it, but it just seemed to be home. You see, for a long time, this was a place where he would go worship you know, with his worshiping community, right? They would do, sing their songs together, do the responsive readings together, take communion together, uh, watch maybe the baptisms together. But what was happening was... And this is what I think, assuming the best, that they're a sincere Christian, is that they are worshiping there. The problem is, other people are worshiping as well, but they're worshiping separate deities with the same form of worship. You see, when you look at worship and coming together to worship, often we can look at the liturgy. Do you know what I mean by liturgy? That's like the prescribed form of public worship. And, and we have a liturgy, don't we? We make very minimal changes to our bulletin because we know there's going to be a predictable pattern. We're going to have an opening song. Then we're going to have an elder come up and pray. Then we'll sing how many more songs? Three more songs. And after the song, what do we have? Communion meditation. There's going to be a different guy giving communion. Then we take communion. We do that every week. And then there's going to be a prayer for the offering. Then announcements. And then we have fellowship time, and then the lights flash, and you guys ignore it, and then we start. <laughs> I'm just saying it. We just flash it for no reason, I guess. <laughs> then we sing another song, and then I get up, and I give an expositional message, and then we close with a song, right? That is our liturgy, and, and I think if you were to go through that, you see that the Bible is a very prominent part of our liturgy, right? We have a scriptural reading and prayer. 
Uh, when somebody gives a communion meditation, they open up the Bible. I mean, you, we all open up our Bibles or open the app on the iPhone, which I assume you are doing. But we have a liturgy. And so even if you don't know what's going on, you know that our church values the Bible. You look at other churches that might have maybe a, a high church liturgy, like the Presbyterians and the Anglican tradition. They, they have certain liturgies that are to communicate a message to promote their theology. But the problem is you can go on with a liturgy, and that can be a substitute for real, genuine worship that's rooted in the Word. You see, a ritual is a wonderful servant, right? I'm not knocking any of the rituals that people do. They're wonderful servants, but they're terrible masters, especially when they keep you from true revelation. And that's what we're about to encounter here as we, we read about an, a, a question that Jesus answers about fasting and praying. Turn with me to Luke chapter 5. Verses 33 through 39. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed." But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. Now in this passage, Jesus makes it very clear that he is starting something new. There is to be new wine and a new age. And the newness of this age will mandate a change in rituals. The revelation and the rituals must sink. And when the revelation changes, the rituals must change as well. Now, before you get nervous about, I'm going to introduce some big changes at this church, you have to keep in mind our place in redemptive history. We are in what's called the church age. When Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, Things changed, right? We're no longer sacrificing animals at the worship service. I mean, can you imagine how messy that would be? Right? We, we remember a sacrifice. Right? We look back on what Jesus did, whereas in the Old Covenant, they look forward to what Jesus would do. And so we are in the church age right now, and there will be a radical alteration of rituals when Jesus returns. I imagine in heaven we might have some new holidays, like Rapture Day. Can you imagine what that would be like? Do you remember when you were raptured? You know, we may not celebrate birthdays, but homecoming days, <laughs> right? There might be new rituals that will match this new reality and this new revelation, but for now, 
things have changed. We're in the new covenant, and what we receive in the Old Testament, the new covenant revelation, is fixed and final, and all of our rituals need to match that. Now, the problem is when the revelation changes, when people adjust the revelation, like my friends who are in that church, what do you do? What do you do when the form of worship interferes with your ability to understand the truth? Rituals are wonderful servants, but they are terrible masters. And Jesus makes it very clear in this passage that they need to mesh and they need to match. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at the rituals, the reason to change rituals, the requirement to change rituals, and the resistance to change rituals, and and then kind of reflect on how do you kind of keep them in sync, all right? So let's look at the, the rituals itself. Now, to bring you up to speed, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was eating with tax collectors and sinners, eating and drinking. And, and the Pharisees kind of object to this. This seems to be unseemly company, and they ask, why do you let your disciples, or Jesus, or they talk to Jesus' disciples himself, uh, themselves, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus says, it's not the, uh, I'm sorry, the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. Yeah, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners to repent. And that leads to a thematic bridge. This is not necessarily the Pharisees asking this question. We know from other accounts, it's really the disciples of John. This is not an objection. I think this is an earnest question where the disciples of John are trying to make sense of what's happening here. And this is what they ask. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Now, the disciples of, of John and the Pharisees all practiced a, um, a fast of mourning, right? It's a fast of repentance. Jesus just mentioned, thematically speaking, that he came to call sinners to repentance. And you would think that if he calls sinners to repentance, that the expression of repentance would be through fasting and mourning. But now they're eating and drinking like they're, they're part of some party. How do you make sense of this? Well, to understand this, you have to understand just the place of fasting and what they're talking about. Fasting is only commanded one place in the Old Testament. Did you know that? Only one place. But you see many examples of righteous people fasting. You have Moses fasted for 40 days before he received the, the law. Uh, David fasted for his sick son. Uh, Nehemiah fasted as a prayer, it led the nation in fasting uh, as they um, commended themselves to the Lord in an act of national repentance. Uh, Usually in the Old Testament, fasting was linked to some crisis moment, like Esther. Remember when Mordecai said, you need to approach the king that would risk her life? She said, pray and fast for me, right? Some crisis moment, uh, or maybe some act of national repentance to be restored to covenantal blessings. It was a voluntary activity with one exception, which I'll talk about later on. But, but eventually, fasting became part of everyday piety, everyday spirituality. And the common practice was to fast twice a week. Famously, remember the Pharisee and the publican? Luke 18, 11 through 12, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector, I fast 
twice a week. The normal practice was to fast on Monday and Thursday, and they would fast during the daylight hours, right? That was an act of spiritual piety, even though it wasn't commanded in Scripture. Uh, a modern equivalent would be the quiet time. Pious Christians get up, they read their Bibles, and then they pray. Now, is that commanded in Scripture? No. Now, is it a good idea? Yeah. Is it often a metric of how somebody is doing spiritually? Oh, you just fell into sin. Did you have a quiet time? Right? Isn't that our first question? Have you been spending time in the Word? It's a good thing, I, and I'm not knocking that, okay? This fasting wasn't necessarily a bad thing. But Jesus begins to make it clear that, that times are changing, that the normal response of repentance used to be fasting and mourning. Now, the one time we have a fast commanded in the Old Testament is during the Day of Atonement. That was a solemn occasion where they would sacrifice a lamb, I'm sorry, sacrifice a goat for their sins, and they had this whole ritual of expunging the sin from Israel to delay the wrath of God for another year. And they were to be contrite, they were to be mourning, they were to be fasting, they were to take it seriously. But now, there's going to be a new dawn where repentance won't lead to mourning. Repentance in this new age is going to have a very different reaction. And the rituals need to show that. So Jesus gives the reason to change rituals in verse 34. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in those days. Now, mourning is out of place at a wedding, isn't it? Unless, of course, you're giving your baby girl to some gorilla. <laughs> then it's okay. But it's not the time to weep and mourn. That's right. This is a celebration. In fact, in the ancient Near East and Judaism at that time, everyone was to celebrate for a week. You weren't allowed to cry and weep unless it's tears of joy. And so Jesus is making it clear, now's not the time to pray and fast and mourn because the bridegroom is here. And the bridegroom was often analogous to, to God in many of the Old Testament accounts. And so he's basically saying the bridegroom, God, is present. Now, I know fall just took place. And what's today's date? 25th, right? Three more months from today is what? Christmas. So I got a Christmas carol for you guys. <laughs> it's not too early. But one of the favorite, it, it, it's this, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And do you guys know what Emmanuel means? God with us. And ransom captive Israel that joins in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. So here you have Israel mourning in lonely exile. All is not as it should be. This is a crisis moment. 
Come, Emmanuel, we, we want you desperately. We are under oppression from a pagan empire. Will you help us? But then it says, rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to you, O Israel. And so here is Jesus, the bridegroom. God is with them. And what is the appropriate response? I mean, when you're in heaven, will you be weeping and mourning around Jesus Christ. I mean, that just doesn't make sense. I mean, if you're weeping and mourning and crying and acting like you're having a miserable time, an angel might come up to you and say, you know, no one's making you stay here. <laughs> right? It's out of place. Certain expressions, certain religious expressions are out of place. In this case, being sad around Jesus Weeping and mourning and fasting around Jesus is like, you guys got to get over it. This is a time of celebration. But there will be an exception. The days will come, verse 35, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So what's he talking about here? There will come a time when this wedding feast will be interrupted when somebody comes and takes the bridegroom away. Now, what does that refer to? It's not Jesus going away, it's when he's taken away. He will be taken away and he will be executed. And at that point in time, mourning and fasting would be an appropriate expression. But when he rises from the dead, the party's back on. See, I think this is a prediction of what's about to happen. In fact, when you look at the book of Acts, you never see... Fasting and mourning linked in Acts. There is fasting. There's three occasions when that happens. But it's always in seeking spiritual direction. Does that make sense? It's different. With the presence of Jesus, with the presence of joy, repentance leads to rejoicing, not mourning. Thus, there is a requirement to change the rituals. Look at verse 36. He also told them this parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it, on, it, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the new piece will... Uh, uh, sorry, let me just start over. I, I mangled that one. Okay. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. There you go. Now, he's using an analogy they can all relate to. You didn't have disposable clothes back then. Clothing was very expensive. Remember how they cast lots for Jesus' garments? Right? You're not going to let that one go. And so if you had a tear in your garment, you don't just send it to goodwill and get a new one. You try to fix it. And so there's a hole in this garment, and they decide, well, we'll get a piece of fabric from a new garment and patch it onto the old garment. Now, why is that a mistake? Because when you wash it and when you dry, what happens to new clothing? It shrinks. That wonderful T-shirt that fits you perfectly the first time, you wear it once proudly, and then it goes through the wash, and everyone thinks that you gained weight. Right? Because it shrinks. So in this case, it not only shrinks and not only does it not match, it actually makes the hole worse. Right? The, the, 
image is obvious. You can't put something new on top of something old because you're going to destroy both. It becomes more explicit in verse 37. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Now, I know what you're thinking. What's a wineskin? Well, what they would do is they would basically butcher an animal, but keep the skin intact. And they would sew it back together, and they'd sew off all the orifices, all the feet would be tied, the neck would be tied, they would stitch it up, and, and then they would tan the inside thoroughly because they did not want the wine smelling or tasting like animal guts. And then they would fill this wine skin with wine, and through the process of fermentation, you know what happens to fermentation, it begins to generate carbon dioxide, begins to puff and expand, and if you use an old wineskin to do it again, it's already brittle from the previous expansion. What's going to happen? You lose the wineskin and you lose the wine, right? You cannot put new wine in old wineskins. So in the coming of Christ, there is going to be new revelation that demands new rituals. We're going to go from the old covenant to the New covenant, okay? And you're like, what's the deal with the covenant? Well, the covenant is a, it's a working arrangement that God has with his people. Now, in the old covenant, the God was present where? He was present in the tabernacle and in the temple. Where is God in the new covenant? He's in the temple. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's in the collective temple of the Holy Spirit. In the old covenant, atonement was achieved through sacrificing animals. In the new covenant, atonement is achieved through the sacrifice of Jesus, right? In the old covenant, entry into God's people for young boys was through circumcision. In the new covenant, it was done through baptism, right? And I can go on and on about all the changes, but the fact is there is a new way of doing business. And and what Jesus is kind of clearing the way for is he's just saying you cannot restrict this new revelation with old rituals. It just won't work. And it's no accident that right after this, he begins to address keeping the Sabbath. Things have to change. There's a new way of expressing devotion to the Lord. It's through the new covenant ministry. We're not going to sacrifice anymore. We're going to look back on the sacrifice of Christ. Communion is an obvious uh, example of this. But yet, there is a resistance to changing rituals. Look at verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good enough. Now, you can kind of relate to that, right? I think there's kind of a reluctance to want to change. Some of you are just naturally conservative. You just figured out Windows, whatever, and then they upgraded it. It's like, oh, man, what are you doing? You're killing me. Now, in this case, they, they're drinking old wine. They've kind of mastered this form of religion. You know, we got this nailed down. We got the fasting thing nailed down. You know, I've adjusted fully to a kosher diet. Why are you changing things on me? There, there's another reluctance where wanting something new is an indictment on the old. And I like the old ways. I, I was very comfortable in that. Or, or perhaps 
you are someone who achieved righteousness or you've kind of met that threshold, at least in the eyes of the Old Covenant, why do you need to start all over? See, in a highly religious society, they were all built around keeping these rituals together. They traveled to the feast together. They ate kosher together. They practiced the Sabbath together. And now all of that's going to change? It is all these rituals that keep us together. Fiddler on the roof, right? It's tradition. That's what keeps you a Jew. You change the traditions, we might lose our identity. Now, this past Monday, I think Great Britain reminded the whole world that they do pomp and circumstance better than any country on earth, right? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. That's why some of you guys watch The Crown. You like the costumes and the tradition, right? It's the rituals. But the whole thing is they have all of these things in place because it's part of their national identity. To change that is to change Britain. That's part of the reason why they keep the monarchy is to keep their national identity. But Jesus makes it very clear that if you form your identity around all these rituals, you will miss out on the new revelation that I'm giving you. This is why Hebrews is such a fascinating book because the author of Hebrews is speaking to a Jewish audience about the need to change. The inadequacies of the Old Covenant. He says in Hebrews 10.4, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You guys need to stop doing that. Why? Because in Hebrews 10.14, For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You need to make the change. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice. You can make an argument that if you're still offering sacrifices for atonement, you're rejecting the shed blood of Christ. Times need to change. And the book of Acts sees, you kind of see God's patience with that, with the book of Acts, where he kind of allows incremental changes so that he's shepherding the church to understand there's a new way of doing business. Eventually, kosher drops. Paul begins to drop circumcision as a requirement. God, through the Holy Spirit, transitions the church to a new covenant ministry with new covenant rituals. And all of this is to say that God wants the rituals and the revelation to mesh and to sink. Because when they don't, the rituals go from a servant of revelation to a master over revelation. So how do you keep that in balance? Well, number one, you need to understand that rituals teach revelation. Rituals teach revelation. The rituals that we have at our church, where we have Bible reading, expositional preaching, all the Sunday school lessons, vacation Bible school, it teaches that the Bible is the source of revelation, doesn't it? That's what the ritual does. I don't have to say a word, but you get the message. You see, in, in the medieval church, when the services were conducted in Latin, they had these elaborate rituals because they would teach people what is going on. The rituals were a means of teaching revelation. You look at the Roman Catholic Church, and the, the high point of the service is the Eucharist. And during the Eucharist, they have a belief that the host, that big wafer, you know, the, actually becomes, it becomes, not like, but actually becomes the bread and the, the bread becomes the body of Christ so that when you eat that bread, you're actually eating Jesus. 
And all of the prayers, all of the kneeling, the, the presentation, they're all part of the ceremony and the liturgy that communicates that this bread is being transformed. And what can happen is, as is done in a, uh, with, in a beautiful place, with beautiful singing, with wonderful smells, with robed priests, is it can get you to sidestep what you know is true to be drawn towards what is untrue. I remember when I was in Russia on a mission trip, this was years ago, I, I was in kind of, a, kind of a factory city. And it was kind of a mangy place, to be honest. Um, a lot of the infrastructure was in disrepair. Sewage didn't always work, kind of smelled. It was very drab. They weren't really creative with the architecture. And, and so we walked into a Russian Orthodox church. And it was like you walked into another world. You didn't smell the sewer. You smelled incense. You didn't see drab, uniform, communist block housing. You saw this, this golden front with all of these pictures. You, you didn't hear the traffic, but you heard an a cappella choir that was obscured by a veil singing a beautiful song with wonderful acoustics. It was like you walked into another world, and it was almost transcendent. You see, a lot of times, uh, the, the appeal of smells and bells is it, it causes you to think that I'm in another world. It can make you feel very spiritual. But if you're not careful, if you're not careful... You see, for a liar to be successful, he has to get the audience to want to believe him, right? For a liar to be successful, he has to get the audience to want to believe him. And part of these rituals and the liturgy is to bring you to a point where you're willing to believe whatever is told to you at that moment. And so if they say that this bread is actually Jesus Christ, and he's still being sacrificed, even though we just read that he is a once and for all perfect sacrifice, you're being deceived. That ritual teaches revelation. And that's why when, when Christians often get hung up on rituals and liturgy, and the revelation of God becomes diminished in their lives, they can go some pretty dark places. They can adopt a theology that is at odds with the revelation that we find in Scripture. In fact, I uh, came across a book this past week called Smells and Bells. It's written by a guy by the name of Mark Galley, who was the editor of Christianity Today, and giving an apologetic for high church worship services. He was a Presbyterian, and then he converted to Anglicanism, and then he converted 12 years after writing this book to Catholicism. He couldn't get enough of tradition. That community, the tradition, as linked by the liturgy, meant more to him than the revelation from God. And that's what happens. Liturgy teaches revelation. But isn't it possible to still practice liturgy with your own revelation? That kind of brings us to the second um, principle, certain religious rituals cannot be synchronized with biblical revelation. 
Certain religious rituals cannot be syncretized with biblical revelation. Now, to syncretize is basically to, har to harmonize contrasting religions. Now, one of the issues that's going on in the missionary world right now is the understanding that some think it's possible to convert to Christianity and still attend mosque, still hold Muhammad to be a prophet, still tithe, or do the Muslim version of tithing, still pray towards Mecca. You can do all those things and still be a worshiper of Jesus. Now, what do you guys think? And the idea is, as long as you have the right revelation in your heart, you can go ahead and practice this ritual. This is the insider movement, and what they will contend is uh, the Muslim world is so thoroughly um, enculturated with Islam that you can't escape it. To deny any Islamic practice is to be a pariah to the culture, so it's better for them to stay in the mosque and pray to Jesus and then, trans and then transform the Muslim world from the inside out. It's called the insider movement. So what do you think? Can you maintain this form and shove revelation into it? Well, this is exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? He's making it very clear that if you cannot shove new revelation into Old Testament Judaism, right? And that would be a much better fit than Islam, wouldn't it? Same law code, same ethics, same God, same heritage, all the prophecies. If it won't work with Old Testament, Old Covenant Christianity, it won't work with Islam. And as you go through Acts and the early church, I, I was given a, um, a position paper by a friend about contextualization and how there are times when there are some adjustments that are made. Like, do you eat meat sacrificed to idols, right? There are some cultural issues that were there, but this missionary gave three very helpful things to consider when thinking about instituting a certain religious practice or, or harmonizing the two. One, does this glorify God? Does this glorify God? Would it glorify God for me to eat kosher as I'm ministering to Jews? Does it consider the needs of others above your own? And then thirdly, does this avoid the appearance of idolatry, real or imagined? Can you go to mosque and avoid the appearance of idolatry? Not on your life. Now, does that mean that you can't take off your shoes like they do there? Yeah, that doesn't necessarily show idolatry, right? It, you know, and then this is where culture kind of goes, um, culture kind of shapes some religious expressions. We might have religious, you know, instruments, use the same instruments, might take off shoes or not take off shoes. You know, at our church, no shirt, no shoes, no service, right? No church service. Um, dad joke there, sorry. There might be a different posture of prayer. Um, women might cover their heads. But that's to serve other people, to glorify God, and it makes it very clear that you're not worshiping a different God. But what happens when revelation changes? 
See, rituals can keep people from revelation. Rituals can give the illusion that you're worshiping God even though the people around you are worshiping a separate God. You see, we believe that revelation is set. We're in the church era. Nothing is to change until Jesus comes back. And something that we do, we do these rituals together, it galvanizes the community. That's why when people might leave our church, they might miss the fellowship time or miss other elements of our worship service. They really get used to having communion every week. And there's nothing wrong with people kind of peeling back on it. We understand that there's certain adjustments. But some people might be involved in a church that is no longer believing and affirming the gospel. And yet it's been where they've been all their lives. And they are able to sing, and they think they're singing to the same God. They're praying, thinking that they're praying to the same God because they're all doing it together. And they might hear a message that everyone can agree with, but really what is unsaid makes it very clear it's a different gospel. What should they do? At that point in time, when you find out that the revelation does not match the gospel, I don't care about the rituals, you leave. Further, rituals can keep people from acting on their conscience. Somebody grew up Presbyterian. They were baptized as a baby. And then they hear a sermon that challenges that, that the biblical pattern is that you believe and then you are baptized you don't get baptized and then believe. But that's what I've always done. My, my family, we've all been baptized as infants. Do you see the problem? When revelation challenges a ritual, what do you do? Should we have an altar call? Well, that's what we've always done. Should we have communion every week? Well, that's what we've always done. Should we put a flag in the sanctuary? Should we call the sanctuary the sanctuary? That's what we've always done. See, at that point in time, you need to take a step back and say, where in the word of God is this mandated? Revelation is the master, not the rituals. And the problem is, when the rituals start to take over, you can have the form of the religion and lose its heart. You see, ultimately, spiritual growth is not found in keeping rituals. Going back to Hebrews... The author says in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Right? True religious practice is not in keeping the rituals, right? What's easier, taking communion every week or being obedient to the word of God? What is harder to do? See, rituals can be a substitute for genuine spirituality. True spirituality is discerning between good and evil and then by the grace of God imparted to you, be able to obey what the Bible has to say. God's not impressed with ritual keeping. Right? Isaiah 29, 13, And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips. Right? They do their prayers. 
while their hearts are far from me. You can do the rituals, but if you don't have the heart, that means nothing to the Lord. And the good news of the new covenant is that God can give you a new heart. You have sinned, you have fallen short of the glory of God, your sin deserves the wrath of God, but Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice so that when you believe in him, you become born again, you become transformed, and part of the new covenant is you get a new heart, and out of this new heart that is responsive to God's word and God's revelation, you can give him praise, give him worship, and give him glory. Rituals are wonderful when they help you in that end, but rituals are a good servant, but a terrible master. All Christians need to be governed by the new covenant revelation of God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are just grateful for the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the Word and the ministry of the Holy Spirit to understand the Word. I pray that we will be a people who is governed by, who are governed by Scripture, that when Scripture speaks, we listen. And Father, I pray for anyone here who's on the outside of looking in. Perhaps this is confusing to them. I pray that they won't be frustrated. They'll want to know more about what is being said. That they will want to, want to experience a new birth and a new heart. So that they can take advantage of all the wonderful gifts that you have given us through your Son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.